0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe.
1: I suggest we use it. The button stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah! Cause I can't-
0: Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true, and we help believers become thinkers, and thinkers become believers. Hi, I'm Kirk
1: Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, Keith. Hey, Kirk. Okay.
0: We uh, just barely got on the air there from the football game, but we made it.
1: (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, I hope you welcomed everybody to Evidence for Faith. Yes, I did. We're going to be continuing our talk on evolution and the problems with evolution. Kirk, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart, having written a book on the topic.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And... For me, it's been a lifelong study, having studied it for 30 years. We've been getting some
0: good email responses and stuff, too, to these programs the last couple. Yeah,
1: yeah, we have. Um, Do you have a copy of Bob's, Cowboy Bob's? uh,
0: No, I don't have it in front of me. I did read it, though.
1: All right. Well, people might remember that one of our listeners is Cowboy Bob. We've read a few of his emails in the past. And so he wrote to us also because... Evolution and the arguments against it are near and dear to his heart, too.
0: I like the way he put it in his last email that he said he's he's going ape over our evolution podcasts.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's a funny guy. <laughs> so, And he blogs on the topic, too. He's got a blog called PiltdownSuperman.com. So PiltdownSuperman.com, if you'd like to see more about the evidences against evolution, check that out. I've checked it out several times. looks like a great blog. He does a good job there.
0: Piltdown Man being one
1: of the famous hoaxes, uh, evolutionary hoaxes. That's right. Uh-huh. That's, why, that's why he named it that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think Piltdown Man, if I remember correctly, it turned out it was all based on a single tooth. And then that tooth turned out to be a pig's tooth. Yeah, either a pig's tooth or an orangutan's
0: jaw, something like that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But uh, scientists were fooled for years by it.
1: That's right. Yeah, there have been a couple of frauds, and so it's hard to keep all of them straight. (laughs) He's written us a long letter, so I can't read all of it, but he did want to throw in his two cents on some of the topics that we were talking about, so I thought I'd read those. He said, you brought up Darwinism cannot explain complexity. I want to add that it cannot explain sexual reproduction, since asexual reproduction makes much more sense. Nor can evolution account for consciousness itself. When I point some of these things out, people will wave the problems off and say, no, not a problem. This reminds me of the Black Knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when he has his arm cut off. When King Arthur says, your arm is off, he says, no, it isn't. But, <laughs> you remember that scene? Oh, yeah. That's a great scene. Come back and fight, but you don't have any arms or legs. I don't care, I'll bite you to death. <laughs> you know, that's uh, and that's true. You know, the evolutionists just don't know when to give up. They don't <laughs> they know when don't. they've lost an argument. Uh-huh. And really, I guess, on the other hand, you can't really blame them because they have nothing else to go to. They don't believe in God. So you have to have some kind of evolution. If you're not going to believe in God, you have to have a naturalistic explanation.
0: Right. As uh, even prestigious uh, publications like Science Magazine have said that there really is no third alternative. It's either evolution or creationism.
1: Right. Right. Uh, He he goes on and says, I am so glad you brought up the terms micro and macro evolution are not constructs of creationists, but rather evolutionists themselves came up with this term. There is equivocation happening with the term evolution because some people will equate micro with macro. One guy actually told me what I believe. He said that since I believe in microevolution, that by default I believe in macroevolution. He missed out on some scientific information about genetic limits to make such a terrible, erroneous statement. And in fact, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the genetic limits and of evolution and so
0: i have a whole chapter in my book uh what is truth about the difference between micro and macro evolution which a lot of well, people are not aware
1: of yeah um you know what i'll have you review that before we get into the topic well i guess since we're on it right now why don't you go ahead and just review for people what the difference is well basically micro
0: evolution uh refers to minor changes within a species which you could also call adaptability And macroevolution is the idea that one species could evolve into another species, a, a totally different species of animal. Now, a lot of evolutionists say, well, because the first one is true, then over a great deal of time, it leads to the second one. But the evidence really doesn't back that idea up.
1: That's right. Because for the first one, the microevolution, all you need to do is have changes in the information, in the DNA information already. So, if you have changes within the DNA, the information that's there, then you can get microevolution. Right. But for macroevolution to occur, you have to have brand new sets of information created. You so, have to
0: have information basically pop in out of nowhere. That's right. Which there's and, no evidence that ever happens.
1: Exactly. And lots of evidence that it doesn't happen. Yep. Well, we've got a couple of news items before we do dig into the topic today. This, I thought, was very interesting. It's something about a professor at the University of Georgia. And this is from World on Campus. It says, a University of Georgia professor searching for meaning finds Christ. So let me just read a couple of paragraphs from this news item. It says, psychology professor Rich Saplita used to sit in the University of Georgia's Tate Plaza holding a handmade sign that read, Ask an Atheist. Anytime a preacher came to campus to share the gospel as the faculty sponsor of the school's Atheist Club, he was adept at explaining how to tackle the issues of life without God. He, he was so good, he almost convinced himself. But after six years of denying God's existence, Saplita had a dramatic change of heart. When he visits Tate Plaza now, he's the one sharing the gospel. Wow. Is that great?
0: Wow, I love stories like that.
1: <laughs> yes. And I tell you, there's a new interest in apologists on getting involved on the campuses around the United States and around the world, actually. There's the new organization called Ratio Christi that is helping to plant some apologists on the university campus so that they can witness and train up a uh, new generation of people who are familiar with the evidences against evolution and for the existence of God and so on. So this is exciting news. It's kind of an answer to the Atheist Club. I thought I would read a little bit about how he came to this decision. So here's a couple more paragraphs. He says, if someone had asked me last fall, if he believed in God, he would have said definitely not. But now Saplita says he's unsure whether he ever really believed that in his heart. He could give a whole list of reasons why he thought it was ridiculous to believe in God, but he now wonders whether he really believed what he was saying. Hmm. It's more like I was trying to convince myself, he said. Saplita always struggled with the atheist worldview's existential crisis, the idea that if atheism is is true, life is ultimately meaningless and not worth living. Saplita realized that the existential crisis extended far beyond the parameters of his own life. Hmm. If it were true, it would mean the same thing for the lives of his daughters aged 10, 7, and 4. Saplita said that while he could spend his time on campus telling his students that there was no God, he could not bring himself to tell that to his own children. He hmm. could not justify teaching them that their lives were meaningless and that there was no God to glorify. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And it says last spring near Easter, Saplita went to an event at Tate Plaza that was sponsored by Watkinsville First Baptist Church. He listened to the preacher and talked with some of the church's members. They encouraged him to reread the Gospel of John and to reconsider the truth of biblical Christianity. A few weeks later, Saplita prayed to receive Christ as his savior. He still believes the existential crisis is real, but now he understands its purpose is to point people to God. Wow, terrific. Is that great? Yeah. So, great little testimony there by a former atheist professor. Then a uh, second news item that I have today, this is from Breakpoint Daily, which I highly recommend. I think people should check that out and get that emailed to them. But he's talking about, sometimes he'll point out some good books and discuss them a little bit. And this one happened to be on marriage. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And then in discussing it, he talks about some of the evidences That show that marriage is a good thing. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we like to point out on this show. We like to talk about the benefits of Christianity and how it makes for a better life. And here's what he says, just one paragraph. People who have been continuously married have 75% more wealth at retirement than those who have divorced or were never married. Hmm. Children in married two-parent families experience two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not, and married people enjoy better and more frequent sex. So, another practical advantage for following the Christian worldview and getting married.
0: Great. So, that means I've been married for over 22 years now. I didn't make a mistake doing that, huh?
1: That's right. You are better off than you would have been.
0: I think so, I can say that quite easily.
1: <laughs> yeah, remember, be sure and tell the missus this when you, uh, when you get back home, because I understand we're not streaming live over the internet today. Oh, really? So, no, so if you're listening live AM, that's all you get. You will, <laughs> the rest of the people will have to listen on podcast. They'll have to get the delayed broadcast. That's right. Well, Kirk, I think there's one more thing before we get into today's topic, and that was that I had the opportunity to go down to Charlotte for the National Apologetics Conference, which I wish you had been there with me. It was really good. Tell us about it. It was a great chance to meet some of our special friends, and I know you are a particular fan of Josh McDowell's. Yes, So I know you would have loved to have been there and got a chance to meet him and talk to him and and get him to autograph books and things like that.
0: His Evidence That Demands a Verdict was one of the first books I read when I became a Christian.
1: There you go. Yeah, he's been writing for probably 30 years or more. He's about 70 years old now and still full of vim and vigor and did a great job.
0: Is he that uh, mature?
1: (laughs) Yeah, he is. He looks good, you know. Um, I didn't
0: realize he was up that high.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he sure is. Okay. Well, let's see. The first thing I did there was a Ratio Christi director's meeting. And remember, I just mentioned that that is that club that's trying to start apologetics ministries on college campuses. And so there were several people there to talk to the directors, one of them being Josh McDowell. So that was great. But there was a guy named Paul Gould, who has been an apologist for a while, he talked about the high cost of not loving God with our minds, and that was really a good talk. He talked about how Christianity becomes culturally irrelevant if it doesn't have anything intellectual to say. And, and he talked about the fact that Christianity becomes spiritually deformed. So he touched both on the intellectual aspect of things and also on the spiritual side of things, how it's important for us to love God with our minds. Mm-hmm. Let's see, then we had, let's see, Curtis Hrishuk, I guess uh, that's how you pronounce his name, who's a PhD with Reasons to Believe, and he talked about some practical tactics for leading a group like a Ratio Christi group, so I guess there's not much point, our listeners are probably not terribly interested in that. We had a guy by the name of Mike Adams, who is a town hall satirist, he writes on the blog, townhall.com and he was really funny but he's also a lawyer and he talked about some of the legal decisions that have an impact on student groups then there was a panel discussion and there were people like professor richard howe who's a philosopher frank turek was there your old uh,
0: buddy william lane craig was there too wasn't he
1: well not for this he came later that's right not for this panel but william demsky another double phd right was there Bruce Little was there, and our old friend, Dr. Jan, Dr. John Sanford was there too. So he's the geneticist that we interviewed a couple of years ago, and he was on this panel. So it was a time of question and answers from people on some of the issues that come out for starting these atheistic or anti-atheistic ministries. So that that was a really good evening. Then let's see, the next day I... Signed up for several of the courses that you could take. There were about the first day. Each hour, you had a choice from about 10 different classes. So it was really amazing. In fact, if I could just reach a minute here, I'll just give you an idea of some of the things that were on the list. And, oh, this probably, I have the program here, but this probably doesn't list out. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, this one didn't list every single, well, I was going to impress everybody by listing like 10 different classes that you could have gone to all at once. (laughs) But regardless, that was each hour of the day, there were 10 different courses that you could pick from and go to a different room in this massive church that was also a Christian school. So there were a lot of rooms around. I hate conferences
0: like that, though. They give you so many choices and you can't go to them all. Mm -hmm. And there's always like, you know, you go to one and it's like there's another one that you hate to miss.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. And now, fortunately, some of them, they repeated. So you could go to it again at a later time. But very few of them did. So most of the ones that I wanted to, you know, you get that one hour where you've got, you know, maybe one item that you want to go see. And then the next hour, there's four things that you want to see and you have to pick. So it's no good. (laughs) But there was a really good one by Tricia Scribner, who is an apologist and an author, and she did a thing about teaching young people to think clearly. So I thought that was a really good one to go to, since I'm teaching young people at my church, and I'm hoping to get involved with this campus ministry at the local college. But she did a wonderful job, and so I made notes. It's Most of the stuff I've taught in the past, because we've done, as you know, We've done things on critical thinking skills and the laws of logic. But there were a few items that she emphasized that I have not emphasized in the past. And so I made note of that. One of the things is the exclusiveness of truth. You know, we don't realize that when we say something is true, we are by definition automatically excluding everything else. So, Kirk, if I tell you that my car is blue that truth claim is excluding all other possibilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, when I tell you my car is blue, I'm also telling you my car is not red, my car is not yellow, my car is not green, etc., etc., etc. Right. And this is something that people have to keep in mind. It, It really is a good way of showing the nature of truth. So when you're saying something's true for you, but it's not true for me, no, that's not. If you're making a truth claim, it's exclusive. And the same with Christianity. If we say Christianity is true, we're saying other religions are not true, at least not in the same way. At least in, uh, in
0: the ways that they disagree with Christianity, they have to be wrong.
1: That's right. That's right. Because truth is the reality around you, it's the nature of the reality around you, and that is only one way.
0: And really, when you get down to it, the basic truth of Christianity is that God visited us as a man, and that man was Jesus Christ. And every other religion, to some extent, denies that claim and says that, no, he wasn't God, or he was just a prophet, or he was just a smart man, or he was this or he was that, but they That's right. they deny that basic claim.
1: That's right. So that was a very interesting talk that I went to. I, I went to one by Professor Richard Howe, also called Answering Popular Atheism. This was really good. He went through some of the rhetorical arguments that we've had to face online in our debates with some of the atheists we've debated. In fact, uh, you might recognize some of these. Kirk, here's one. Number one was, atheism is not a belief. Okay? You know, pretty ridiculous statement. <laughs> Number two, I only believe one less God than you. Number three, science flies you to the moon, religion flies you into buildings. (laughs) So those were some of the rhetorical arguments for atheism. And then he went over some of the scientific arguments. Christianity has always stood against science. Christians reject science. Oh, because the earth is no longer the center of the universe. You know, you've heard that one. Uh Let's see, what else did he say here? Most scientists are atheists. Then they have these different philosophical arguments, too. If everything needs a cause, then even God needs a cause. Atheists can be moral. So, some of the standard arguments by atheists he went over, some of the more popular ones. These are not the real elite intellectual arguments that you sometimes hear about. These are just the ones that are in like all the popular books that are out there that are making the bestseller lists. Right. And... You know, they're they're all ridiculous. We've all tackled we've tackled these in the past, and I'm sure we'll tackle them again in the future. So then I went to a talk by Dr. William Dembski, and I hope most people recognize that name because he's one of the founders of the intelligent design movement. Right. And let's see. Let me just make a look look through some of these notes here. Some interesting things he went over about the Evidence for the intelligence, intelligent design, and the DNA and how it contains information. But let's jump to another talk. Let's see. I went to a talk by Ted Wright on young versus old Earth. That was pretty interesting. That was a not taking sides thing, but he just went over some of the ideas that you have to consider when you're examining the question of is the you know who's right? Is the evidence that the earth is young stronger than the evidence that the earth is old, that kind of thing. Right. And he didn't really go over the evidence itself. He just went over some of the philosophical principles that you have to keep in mind in order to make a fair determination. Right. Then there was a really interesting talk by a guy named Mark Allen I had not heard of before on the persuasive power of beauty. And he went into the Three transcendentals that we've talked about in the past, truth, goodness, and beauty. And so he focused on beauty and its mysteriousness and how it is evidence for the existence of God. Huh. So that was that was a really interesting talk. I like those kinds of talks about that can answer the questions about why there are such things as music, why there is such things as art, and the beauty that we apprehend in the universe that atheistic explanations just can't explain right well we should let people know that if you're just joining us you are listening to evidence for faith I'm Keith Kendricks
0: and I'm Kirk Hastings
1: and we are talking about the topic of evolution today but before we get into our main topic I'm just going over some of the classes that I went to at the National Apologetics Conference in Charlotte North Carolina last week now how many days was this conference uh, it was two days, all day Friday uh-huh. and all day Saturday.: It sounds so, like they were
0: packed days then.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they sure were, and there were a lot of people there. there. was It's difficult to tell how many people were there. It was such a big church, and so many people spread all over. But my guess is that probably between a1,000 and 2,000 people there. So it was really uh, excellent time. Let's see. there was the next talk I went to was by Ted Wright. And he talked about the archaeology of the Exodus. So that was Mm. really good. Now, he talked about, specifically, talked about the Battle of Jericho. And that's something that we've gone over in the past also. So not a whole lot new there. Although, he did point out this new find uh, that I thought was really interesting. There's a thing, Kirk, called the Dream Stella. Have you heard of that?
0: Mm, No, I don't think so.
1: So in this dream, Stella, it talks about a dream that the second son of Amenhotep II had, and he dreamed that he would become pharaoh due to the death of his older brother, who was firstborn. And as best we can tell, Amenhotep II was the pharaoh that Moses went to. So to re- you know release the Jews from captivity in egypt Mm -hmm. so that is really an additional point of historical accuracy that shows that amenhotep's the second second son came to power and not the first son due to an untimely death of the firstborn Hmm. so really fascinating yeah
0: i just finally broke down and bought the ten commandments on dvd the other day i'll have to watch that
1: oh there you go you mean the old movie yeah Oh great!
0: Believe it or not, I I haven't owned it before, but I just got it the other day. So
1: all right. Well, it's I'm it's worth watching over and over again.
0: Yes, classic movie. Yep. They don't make Damn. them like that anymore.
1: No, they don't. Then the old the are the uh, next talk I went to was by Josh McDowell, and that was very interesting. He did a talk about the pervasiveness of pornography on the internet and how much it's affecting people and the number of addicted persons now is climbing exponentially, and it's even affecting Christian kids. It says here, I think he said, 55% of Christian kids are regular users of pornography. Wow! So he was giving us a warning, and then he gave us several guidelines of what we could do about it. Well, that's a uh, new,
0: uh, new topic for him.
1: Yeah, it is. He's been looking at it pretty intently recently he spent he said over a hundred thousand dollars his ministry did in collecting data and statistics and doing studies to find these numbers so so it was very very interesting yeah he's been you know he's been focusing on younger kids for quite a while now past decade I'd say he was focusing on college kids and then he later kind of moved down to high school age, and lately he's been focusing on junior high kids and producing apologetics materials for younger kids, and that's really been a terrific thing. Yeah. Because you can't get to uh, kids soon enough the way that the atheists and secular people are trying to push their ideas on our kids in public schools right. at younger and younger ages.
0: Right. And they get it from TV even younger.
1: Oh, Absolutely. So, then the next talk was by Greg Kokel. This one was about bad arguments against religion. (laughs) And that was really interesting, too. Talked about the argument of that there is no truth. The argument that...
0: Is that really uh, true?
1: (laughs) uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? It's a contradiction, obviously. (laughs) So, he talked about the argument that if there's evil in the world, then there must not be a god. Talked about the argument of science versus religion talked about some of the ad hominem arguments, attacking believers as stupid, and things like that. So uh, so he went over bad arguments for atheism. And
0: it's amazing how many there are.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and, you know, we just have to keep going over and over again because we get, continue to get emails from atheists that uh, have all these bad arguments in it. Then the next talk was Mike Lycona. Have you heard of him?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: Mike Lycona is an up-and-coming apologist. He's wrote a book on the resurrection, and he did a talk on, is Jesus the only way? So he talked about universalism and talked about Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, talked about the difference between universalism, exclusivism, and inclusivism. So that was, that was really good.
0: Well, they covered a lot of ground at this conference.
1: Yeah, lots of theology topics and lots of science topics. Bill Dembski did a a talk next on the um, why theistic evolution fails. So that was really good. You know, if you're going to be an evolutionist or if you're going to be a believer, there are a couple choices. You can be a young earth creationist, you can be a progressive creationist, or you can be a evolution, or I guess what they call theistic evolutionist. And that's the only one that really doesn't work. Right, Theistic evolution just uh, is a true contradiction.
0: It's kind of putting a foot in two camps that
1: just don't mix with each other. Exactly. Exactly right. And then, let's see, then there was another talk by Richard Howe that I went to, and this was on how philosophy can help your theology. So this was a really interesting topic. Obviously, for me, I love philosophy, and sometimes you'll hear Christians complain against philosophy philosophy because they'll know about a scripture verse that talks about empty philosophy and being deceived by empty philosophy. And his point was that, well, if you're if you're concerned about empty philosophy, then you have to know something about philosophy in order to tell what philosophy is empty and what philosophy is not empty. Right. So it's not a good argument to avoid philosophy, but philosophy can really help your theology. So he listed several points. One is that philosophy can help establish the foundations of your theology. Um, Second argument was that philosophy helps define truth. Third is that you can make sure that your doctrines are not contradictory. And then fourth was that it demonstrates the existence of God. So that was a really good talk. I took lots of notes on that one. Let's see. Then I did a, went to a talk by Josh McDowell again and he did a thing about misconceptions that Christians have. And so he talked about blind faith, and this was really good. He did. He basically made the statement that no one is ever saved by faith.
0: Well, that's an interesting statement.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that was a shocker for a lot of people.
0: What did he mean by that?
1: <laughs> well, What do you think he meant by it?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well? If he's talking about blind faith, okay, yeah, I can understand that.
1: And that's, of course, what he was talking about.
0: Yeah, that's not based on anything, just feelings or whatever.
1: Well, faith didn't save you. Did faith go to the cross and pay for your sins? No, God did. That's right. Jesus Christ did. So, Jesus Christ is the one who saved you, not faith. I see. So, yeah, it's it's an argument against blind faith or having faith in faith instead of faith in Jesus. Right. In order for your
0: faith to work, it has to be faith in the right
1: object. That's right. That's right.
0: I've often heard people say that prayer can save you, and I often think, it's not prayer that saves you, it's God that saves you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, prayer is only the way of uh, achieving that salvation. Right. So, um, he talks about, then he went in to talk about how Christian faith is not subjective, you know, it's, it's not one of those things that's true for you but not for me, that it's objective, it's faith in an object, right? Faith in Jesus Christ, Right. somebody real, and if that person isn't real, then the faith is no good.
0: Right. And even uh, uh, the Apostle Paul said that in the New Testament. He said, if, if Jesus Christ is not God and he's not raised from the dead, then your faith is futile.
1: Right, right. So, then he talked about another, this is uh, bad or misconceptions about Christian faith. He said that one of the misconceptions is that Christian faith must be proven scientifically to be accepted exclusively. So, you know, that's the mistake that some evidentialists can make is that, you know, you have to have total evidence, exhaustive evidence before you can make a decision. And no, in fact, you know, just because Christianity is not something you can take to the laboratory and do experiments on, it's still true based on, the same kinds of standards for evidence for legal, historical, evidential methods of study. And that's how you can look at Christianity and determine whether it's true or not. Right. Then another bad thing that he mentioned was thinking that your heavenly father is like your earthly father. And that can really set up a lot of emotional barriers to Christianity. So, if you, you know, if you were treated badly by your father, your earthly father, that can really interfere with your Christian faith.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure it does for a lot of people. Yeah. it's a major stumbling block to some people who have had abusive fathers and alcoholic fathers and whatever.
1: Yep, absolutely. Then there was a talk by William Lane Craig about the argument of if evil exists and God does not exist, and we've covered that in the past, so there's no reason to go over that again. Right. Then the final talk was by Frank Turek, and he talked about the arguments that atheists steal from God. So that was kind of interesting. He's a thought-provoking apologist, Frank Turek. I recommend any of his books and his radio program and podcasts, too. But he talked about some of the arguments that atheists will use, for instance, that there's no free will talked about how you can't trust reason, you know, the atheists want you to trust reason, but if atheism is true, then you can't trust reason, reason because you're basically nothing but a smart monkey brain,
0: (laughs) you know? (laughs) Or you're just a a conglomeration of cells and DNA and whatever and whatever, and, you know, you can't determine truth.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, the uh, rules of logic really don't apply if, you are, if your brain is been developed by random chance. And if that's true, why are we listening to them? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's a, that is a good argument.
0: That's what I always like to say when I hear that kind of an argument. It's, it's like, well, then why am I listening to you then? <laughs> go away.
1: Right. That's right. <laughs> so he talked about argument from information, argument from morality, the argument from evil and then the argument about science. So that was a really terrific, terrific conference that I went to, the National Apologetics Conference. Sounds like it. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are going to start talking about evolution and the limits of genetic information. Is it true what the evolutionists say? Is it true? Can... DNA just slowly mutate bit by bit and slowly change from one type of a creature to another type? Is that possible?
0: And can it make advancements while it does that?
1: Exactly. Well, the short answer is no, it can't. There are (laughs) limits to genetic information. And this is something that breeders know very well breeders always reach limits when they try to create new breeds sure you know you create a a big dog you get a great dane or i assume a great dane is the biggest dog i don't know but you keep breeding 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 and you just get to a limit and things start to fall apart on these very specialized breeds you find out that for instance i believe uh, great danes have back problems they also don't live very long they have you know, these genetic issues that start popping up because the breeders have sub-selected the genetic information that was available to the whole gene pool so much that these animals that are have reached the limits and there's just no further that they can go. Right. And with, this is with all the
0: experimentation that's been going on in this area for, I don't know, a couple hundred years or more now, wouldn't Absolutely. you think that by now if if one species could mutate into another that we would have found a way to, to change to create new animals by this oh, time?
1: Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine a breeder you know, who's breeding, say, chihuahuas? Doesn't a chihuahua sort of look like a little cat? I mean, why can't a, a breeder breed a chihuahua into a cat?
0: Yeah, like a hairless cat.
1: <laughs> right, right. It wouldn't take very much, would no, it? No, not really. Well, it doesn't look like it, but in truth, it actually does, because dogs and cats are completely different types of animals, and they have completely different chemical pathways, different proteins that are doing different jobs, and so...
0: Different um, instincts?
1: You really, yeah, that's right. Different
0: behavior patterns?
1: Yeah, all kinds of differences, and you just can't... Yeah. uh, You can't make the leap across. So, but it's true not only for dogs, cats, it's also true for things like corn, Uh, roses, you know, they're... Roses have been hybridized now for decades, centuries even, and there's just a limit to how far you can go with the genetic information that's available in the rose kind. Same with corn. Can you imagine the millions and millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars you would make if you could change corn and make it have, let's say, twice the sugar content that it does now? I mean, you know, you'd basically almost solve world hunger. You would instantly become a multi-multi millionaire. Or but if you could make it not even possible,
0: if you could make it even grow twice as fast or twice as big or something.
1: Yeah. You know, exactly. like these old
0: monster movies where they they do these experiments and they come out with a 16 foot ear of corn or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean,
0: geez, if you could do that, we could feed the world easily.
1: That's right, and. You know, thinking evolution-wise, you would think that it would be possible to do this. Yeah. But in reality, it's not because there's simply not enough information there. You have to work with the information that's already stored in the DNA. And causing mutations and changing those nucleotides of the DNA simply destroy information. They don't produce more information. There's nothing really that shows this better than the fruit fly experiments that have been done for decades now. It's been estimated recently, it was estimated that in these fruit fly experiments, which what the scientists do is they'll expose the fruit flies to radiation in order to mutate their DNA. And since fruit flies reproduce rapidly, they can do this very quickly. So I, I think you get a new generation in 20 days, I think. I'm not sure. I guess I'll, somebody will have to Google that for me and email it in. But Pretty quick. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's very quick. So it allows you to go through to expose the fruit fly and then see what happens to the offspring. Right. It's been estimated that every single base pair of the entire DNA of fruit fly has individually or in groups been altered. And it has failed to produce anything but crippled fruit flies yeah. So this is a falsifying experiment for evolution. It shows these fruit fly experiments show that macro evolution is false.
0: They haven't created a grasshopper out of a fruit fly yet.
1: Exactly. Or even a house fly. Right. So and because the generations were so rapid, there were millions of years worth of evolution were simulated in these experiments and Nothing happened. No improvement whatsoever. And again, this this experimentation method has been repeated with bacteria. They there have now been the completion of 20 years worth of bacterial experiments, where they've had the same bacteria mutating them and watching them mutate for generation after generation after generation. So, as an example, what they'll do is they'll take a jar of bacteria and supply it with nutrients and bacteria now they reproduce very quickly quickly they'll reproduce every 20 minutes right so they'll do this for more than 10,000 generations and can you guess what happens Kirk what happens to those bacteria after 10,000 generations
0: there's still bacteria
1: ta da You think (laughs) yeah they are still bacteria they don't turn into what, what would we get, uh, amoebas or something or maybe you know some, some kind of more complex single cell or maybe joining together and becoming some small multicellular life? No, it just doesn't happen. Whoa. What happens is you get about 100 mutations and a few of those, three or four of those hundred mutations, most of those mutations don't do anything. Three or four of those mutations help the bacteria to survive or to adapt in that particular situation that it finds itself in. Right. So it adapts to the nutrients that you're supplying it. Say you're feeding those bacteria sugar, you know, just regular household sugar. Well, a couple mutations will happen that allow those bacteria to digest the sugar faster. And then that's it. Then it stops. You get nothing else. And what's interesting, this is really interesting, is that most of the mutations occur right away. And then they trail off. So those 100 mutations, the vast majority of them are happening right away. Once the bacteria get into their new situation of being trapped in this jar, being fed this specific nutrient, and then the mutations just fade away. Right. So this is a clear indication that those mutations are happening Because they're designed to happen. They're engineered to happen right at the time that the bacteria goes into a new environment. So when the bacteria is exposed to stress, it re-engineers itself to adapt itself to that new environment. In fact, one of these experiments actually showed that the bacteria would sample the environment and turn on the genetic information that it needed to digest the specific kind of sugar that it was being exposed to. Right. So this is an incredible discovery. It shows that the genetic information that's there inside the the bacteria is actually designed to re-engineer itself so that it can adapt to its environment.
0: But then it's interesting. I think uh, in some of the recent material you've supplied me with on this subject, these experiments also show that when they when these bacteria, for instance, re-engineer themselves to, you know, their their new circumstances, that eventually, if left to themselves, they will go back to their original state again.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And it's, if they are, say, they, they have to be able to, they either have to be returned to their previous environment, so in other words, the nutrients that you're feeding them, you know are no longer supplied and they you release them into the wild then they will resort back to their wild state right so that's really true and that's that is another clear genetic truth that proves that evolution is not true
0: so again the the tendency is not change in a permanent sense or advancement or evolution or whatever the tendency is to remain what it is
1: that's right. Over the long term. Over the short right. term, you can see advantages. I mean, it's clear that when they were done with their 10,000 generations, that this new, this new bacterial generation was better adapted to the particular situation it was in. Right. So that is positive. But it's positive because it was based on information already within the bacteria. It didn't create any new information that allowed it to digest the the new nutrient better. Right. And
0: even there's even a limit to that though. If you try to feed it poison, it won't adapt to the poison. There's only certain things it can adapt to because it has the capability of adapting to that. But other things it can't adapt to.
1: Well, believe it or not, even that is not really true. Bacteria do in fact adapt to poisons. Really? And and that yeah, that is where we get these bacteria antibiotic resistant bacteria so the the antibiotic is absorbed into the bacteria thinking that it's food it digests it and that breaks down the product and releases the poison inside the bacteria and that's how the antibiotic kills the bacteria so if there's a mutation that occurs to the bacteria that destroys some of the information within the bacteria and prevents it from being able to eat that certain type of, or break down that certain type of chemical, then it will no longer, the poison now no longer affects the bacteria. But see, Kirk, that's a loss of genetic information. Right. Even though it temporarily helps the bacteria to survive in a new environment, an environment full of poison, still that bacteria all in all is worse off. You put them back into its wilds, to the wild, and it will die off or it will merge back to its previous state.
0: Right. I guess what so, I was really thinking was how so many like um, types of creatures have gone extinct over thousands of years that they simply got to the point where they couldn't adapt anymore and they just oh, absolutely. go out of existence.
1: That's right. That, that's absolutely true. And it's most likely going to be these kinds of highly adapted organisms that are going to go extinct because they've lost a lot of the information that was available to them in the entire genetic pool. Right. So if you, if you were going to, for example, let's say the Earth was uh, near destruction. We had to create a spaceship arc, a spaceship Noah's Ark, and you had to pick what species you were going to take on that arc and you didn't have room. Which, which dog are you going to take? Are you going to take a Great Dane? Or are you going to take a Chihuahua? No, what you should take is you should take the kind of animal that was most like the original dog kind. So, in this case, you would take a Middle Eastern wolf. Right. So, we know that genetically all the dogs came that we have in the world today came from the Middle Eastern wolf.
0: Right, I've so heard that. So,
1: you would take that and that, that animal would be most likely to have most of the gene genetic information to make all the other dogs.
0: Right. Huh. Yeah, that Say, makes sense.
1: Yep. Yeah. Same as uh, apples, you would take the Kazakhstan apple because as far as we can tell, apples originally came from Kazakhstan from that those apples that are there. In other words, you would take basic kinds. Yeah, exactly, and you'd try to find the ones that were the most wild kind. Right. Not the most that were the most purely adapted to specific niche environments. Right. You'd want you want the one that has the most genetic information.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: it turns out, Kirk, that these these changes that we see tend to be cyclical, you know, or or cyclical in nature. And they demonstrate that what's really happening is microevolution and not some kind of change into something bigger. So, for example, Darwin's finches, the beak sizes changed. Well, he noticed that they changed and he wrote it up, uh, you know, and it turns out that they change over time and then they change back again. So they'll change from small to big depending on the local weather patterns right or peppered moths you know we we thought that it was the smog being on the tree trunks that caused peppered moths to change color it turns out that now we know that peppered moths actually cyclically change back and forth so every decade or so they will become darker and then a decade later they become lighter right so uh, these are all examples of the cyclical change and limits of DNA information. So but, evolution. But they're still
0: moths and the finches are still finches.
1: That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, to Evidence for Faith. Please send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's email at evidence4faith.com. the number four, faith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That one.